Let's open the Word of God to John chapter 4. We've already received more of the Word of God than most churches offer, and yet we are nothing, and we're less than nothing, but we're thankful for His abundant grace to us and all that He's taught us and how He's led us. Let's go up to the mountain and worship the Lord. While I knew the psalm that was to be presented this morning, it was not part of my thoughts in preparation, and it was during the night when the Lord told me that the service was to be opened with Isaiah chapter 2, the first four verses. I had studied them in leading to our study of John chapter 4, but they had left me until last night. And I had to read Hebrews 12, 22 through 24 without any intention of stealing from Eric because it was the New Testament perspective on Isaiah 2, 1 through 4 about the mountain of the Lord's house being established in the top of the mountains. This woman that we're reading about, the woman of Samaria, had her citizenship transferred. She referred to one mountain, but by the time the Lord Jesus Christ was done with her, she was from another mountain, and she was from another city. I want to remind you, and I could turn you there, but it will get me off track if I see the verses, because they are too good. It's the last 10 or 12 verses of Galatians chapter 4 written to the churches of the Gentiles, not to the Jews. And an analogy is given there of two women, Hagar and Sarah. And Sarah had the son of promise, Isaac. Hagar had the son of the flesh, Ishmael. And the Lord Jesus Christ, himself a Jew, taught the apostle Paul to write those Galatians and tell them that Jerusalem on earth was to be compared to Hagar and Ishmael, right. the, the woman and the son, that were to be cast out. And that Jerusalem, which is above, is the mother of us all. Right. Now, if Jerusalem, which is above, is our mother, where were you born? In Jerusalem. I want to tie things together for us. Amen. This woman's about to have her mountain changed. She starts out in verse 20 here. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. But by the time she's done, she isn't going to care about Mount Gerizim. She isn't going to care about Mount Zion on earth. She isn't going to care about Mount Sinai that some like to go to, like the Seventh-day Adventists, who are still living by the Ten Commandments. And I mean, the Fourth Commandment is the only one they know that they emphasize. We have a new mountain. She's going to have a new mountain. And it's Mount Zion in heaven. It is a picture of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, his throne room set on that mountain, and the church, the general assembly is all gathered around it. It includes an innumerable company of angels. That is where we're worshiping this morning, together with them, bound together by the Spirit of God and the truth of his word. But let's keep all those things tied together by the grace of God. We are the nations of the earth. We have flowed unto the mountain, the Mount Zion that is above, the heavenly Jerusalem, where Jesus Christ sits and reigns. He's our Savior. He introduces himself to her. She's going to introduce him to the rest of her city. And I hope that we have the same kind of zeal, that we want to meet him personally, and we want to share him to others. As we sang a couple of different times this morning. Rather than reading all the way through verse 42, which is our goal for today, 
Let me get started, make a little bit of a review from what we covered in the second assembly last Lord's Day, and then move into these verses. Let me remind you that preaching is not storytelling. Preaching is not illustrations. Preaching is not a praise band. Preaching is what Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8 tells us. They read in the book, in the law of God distinctly, and gave the sense, and caused them to understand the reading. That's what preaching is. Now, preachers vary by fervency, and hearers vary by preparation and participation. So there's a burden on both of us to make something out of these verses because there's a lot there, and it's precious matter inspired by the Holy Spirit and written down in the pages of our King James Bibles. So I'm going to read and explain, but I want these verses 20 through 24 again because I do not want to go away from John 4 without you knowing them thoroughly and without you being able to teach them yourself to someone else. I will not call upon everyone here to be ready to defend these verses, but at least that you could explain them to someone else because they're important watershed verses of a watershed event in the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I read five verses. Beginning at verse 20, it's the woman of Samaria speaking to Jesus. She has just said in verse 19 that she perceives he is a prophet because... He has just given her some details of her life that he would not otherwise know but by divine revelation. Verse 20. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. These verses are very important to us. I have to have you know them, or I fail as a pastor by just moving on too quickly. Our fathers, she's referring to the Samaritans, the Assyrian and Jewish half-breeds, as a result of a great immigration policy by the kings of Assyria, were the Samaritans. I've covered that before. I will not repeat all the details. She says, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, 30 miles north of Jerusalem was another mountain called Gerizim, and there the Samaritans copied the worship of the Jews in Jerusalem. They were on a mountain, they had a temple, so the Samaritans built a temple. They had an altar, the Samaritans had an altar. In 129 BC, John Hyrcanus of the Maccabees destroyed the place, but they still worshiped toward that mountain because of the holy place that they had designated for that temple copying the Jews again because Solomon had dedicated his temple by saying, even if we sin against you and you destroy this place and take us captive into other nations, in those foreign places, if we pray toward Mount Zion in Jerusalem, hear us from heaven and deliver us. And so we read in Daniel chapter 6 and verse 10, 500 miles to the east in Babylon, 
Daniel would open his windows three times a day, get on his knees and pray toward Jerusalem because of Solomon's prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8. Now, the devil can do no better than ape the worship of God. That means he copies it. And so we have Muslims praying toward Mecca, even though the idea originated after 700 AD by the illiterate trader Muhammad, because they're just copying the Bible. This, these Samaritans were copying the Old Testament, first five books of the Bible. They only, that's all they believed was the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. So she's referring to the tradition of her fathers, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. You've got your religion, and I've got my religion. Now I know that you're a prophet, and I know that you're a Jew. Remember, she said that in verse 9. How is it that thou, being a Jew, since you're a Jew, and since you're a Jewish prophet, let's just agree to disagree on our religions, because our fathers, my tradition, my way of worship, is in Mount Gerizim of the Samaritans. Your way is in Jerusalem. You're going to meet people like this many times. They think that tradition or the way they were brought up is the way that they should continue to worship. And what we want to do is measure everything by the word of God. And Jesus is about to tell her, you don't even know what you're worshiping because there's no revelation of God involved in it. It is simply a matter of national preference of the Samaritans. And I want you to understand that mountain. You would not know about that mountain if I hadn't told you. You would not know what that mountain is. This mountain. Can't be Sinai. Can't be Zion. It's this mountain. Where are they? They're in Samaria. How do we know that? Because it told us in the first three or four verses of this chapter that Jesus must needs go through Samaria. So they're in Samaria, away from Judea. And there's a mountain there. And all it takes is a little bit, you know, we can research things. You can research things easier than anyone in the history of the world. All you have to do is type it into a Google search box, and you can find out what mountain the Samaritans worshipped on. It was Mount Gerizim. Mount Gerizim had been chosen by God for the blessings on Israel, and Mount Ebal, a half a mile to a mile away for the curses of God. The priest would stand in between and read out the curses and read out the blessings, And they'd shout, Amen. Amen. You can read about it in the book of Leviticus. But that's where the mountain came from originally, but the uh, Samaritans copied it and abused it and and tried to replace Jerusalem worship there on Mount Gerizim. And so in verse 20, I have my tradition, you have your tradition. Neither of us can rely on tradition. I am not a Baptist by tradition. I am a Baptist by revelation. I am a Baptist by conviction. I'm a Baptist by inspiration. I'm a Baptist by what the Bible tells me is why I'm a Baptist. I'm not a Baptist because my father was a Baptist minister, though he was a Baptist minister. I'm a Baptist because the Bible describes true baptism, and therefore I'm like John, Jesus, and the other apostles who were all Baptists. That's why he was called John the Baptist. And if you're baptized by a Baptist preacher, then you're a Baptist. And so was Jesus a Baptist, and Mary was a Baptist. Because they were all baptized by a Baptist preacher named John. We want to measure our religion by the revelation of God's word. We don't care about tradition. We don't care about what we inherited from our parents. We want to make sure that it is according to the word of God. And thus the emphasis on the Bible in our church. Thus the emphasis on everything you hear 
between Sundays is based on the Bible. More reminders about the Bible. Top text, bottom text, more text. For you to be thinking about Scripture, that if we don't have Scripture to back up what we're doing, our worship is unacceptable. Because it's not according to truth. Jesus says to her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. For the sake of the argument, Jesus shows us how to evangelize a person. You don't have to jump on everything they say. Do you notice that he identified her as being a fornicator? She'd had five husbands before, and the man she was living with now was not her husband, but he didn't jump on her for that. Trust me, he's going to get to it later, but she's going to repent later. But he leads her along gently. You can jump on a person for some small thing they say or are doing without leading them to Christ first. Show them the Lord Jesus Christ and let him by the power of the Spirit and the Word of God bring them to a place of repentance. There's wisdom here, a lot of it, and it's not really our point, but I need to make some of the observations in passing. Now she has said in verse 20, our fathers worshiped in this mountain. He did not blast traditional worship. Do you know that he gives her the benefit of the doubt that they worship the Father in Mount Gerizim? Notice what he said. The hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. He made the two religions comparable to each other. For one sentence. That they weren't comparable to each other. Worship in Gerizim was worship of the devil. I was asked last Lord's Day about that, that I said that the worshiping in Mount Gerizim or false worship is worship of the devil. And I, if you want to turn, I'll read it. But it's 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 20. That when you worship idols or false gods, you're worshiping the devil because the devil is the one that has sown the lie that has caused you to worship contrary to revelation and therefore he's the object of the worship. 1 Corinthians 10, 20. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God, and I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. That's terrible, isn't it? I love it. It's the way it should be, black and white. Very clear. There's not all this middle ground that I'm not sure if I'm worshiping God or if I'm worshiping the devil. Either you're worshiping God or you're worshiping the devil. Paul didn't know a difference. Jesus is going to say to this woman, who had a religion a whole lot closer to the truth than the religions Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 10, but still he said, Ye know not what ye worship. Verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. The Father, our God in heaven, the Lord Jehovah, requires a particular kind of worship. And he changes his worship from time to time. For the first 2,500 years of world history, the worship was patriarchal. Abraham could build himself an altar and offer animal sacrifices himself as his own priest for his family. And so it was patriarchal worship. Abel could bring a sacrifice, which he did in Genesis chapter 4. And that lasted for 2,500 years. In the midst of that time, there was the flood. And Noah, when he got off the ark, remember, he had some extras of some animals, clean animals that he was able to offer in sacrifice to God. Because that was the patriarchal system. It's called from Adam to Moses, 2,500 years. Then there's Moses' system of religion. That is the Old Testament. 
That is the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And that lasted for 1,500 years from Moses at Mount Sinai until Jesus on Mount Zion and dying on Mount Calvary for us. And so he changes worship. And worship is right now about to be changed again to its final form, the New Testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are worshiping in the final form of worship on earth, and that is the New Testament of Jesus Christ. Those are the three dispensations. Is that word used? Yes. Uh, is that word used in the Bible? Yes. But those are the three dispensations that we allow because that's what the Bible teaches us. From Adam to Moses, from Moses to Christ, and from Christ's first coming to Christ's second coming is the millennial kingdom. The word millennial isn't in the Bible. The word thousand years is only in one place, Revelation chapter 20. And it's for that thousand years being a symbolic term of the reign of Jesus Christ from his first coming to his second coming, under which we worship according to the new covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have ordinances like baptism and the Lord's Supper. We're in local churches. We believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We love one another. We're in union with the general assembly which is above. And wherefore, having received a kingdom, let us worship God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So there, there we are, but there's a change right now taking place, transitioning from the Old Testament and Moses' system of the tabernacle and the temple and the altar and the candlestick and the showbread and all that stuff. You know, you couldn't sleep with, you couldn't even sleep in the same bed with your wife one week out of the month. And on the 718 commandments of Moses' law, all those laws, those ceremonial ordinances, the calendar, the trumpets, the years of release, the, the, the drilling holes through servants' ears and all that stuff was the Old Testament, and it was about to go away. And so Jesus uses the future tense in this verse, 21, the hour cometh, when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father, because worship is going to be declared on a clearer basis that it is to be in spirit and it is to be in truth. Verse 22, woman, ye worship ye know not what. Verse 22, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. God's relationship with men, God's deliverance of a nation, God's obscure message of the gospel under the Old Testament was to one nation only. Holding your hand, of course, at John 4, look at Psalm 147, and I just have to use this passage. I want you to remember it, that God chooses to whom he will reveal the truth. He does not owe the truth to every man. Right. Truth is not a right. Truth is a privilege. Amen. Truth is a blessing. Truth is a favor. We chose a lie in the Garden of Eden, and so we deserve lies. And he will turn men over to lies. He will confound men. Even the New Testament teaches he will send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. Can you hear it? That's the word of God. We believe it. Let us embrace it. And let us humble ourselves and beg him, show me thy truth. And Lord, deliver me from delusion. My heart is already deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Save us, Lord. He has. If we pray too hard that way, it'll be ungrateful for what he's already done for us. Look what he's done for us. Amen. 
we just read Isaiah 2, and I didn't ask for a donation for Israel. It mentioned Zion. It mentioned Jerusalem. It mentioned Jacob. It mentioned the mountains of Israel. John Hagee would ask for a donation for the Prime Minister of Israel if he were here. God's already blessed us. Look at the last two verses of Psalm 147. Psalm 147, verse 19, He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He hath not dealt so with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye the Lord. Should we praise the Lord beside information like that? That the vast majority of the world never got the word of God? They never got the prophets of God? They never got the judges of God? They never knew God's will in detail for their lives? Should we praise the Lord next to that? Yes. Praise ye the Lord. He has revealed truth to us from the New Testament scriptures. And they've come to us. We've had men preach them to us. We have them. We can buy them so easily. You can buy a Bible at the dollar store. Thank you, Lord. Come back to John 4, verse 22. Jesus told the woman of Samaria, Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship. Brethren, our worship has to be based on knowledge. We know. You don't know. We know. You don't know. It has to be based on knowledge. Let us never forget that. If we do not find the revelation of God, study it, learn it, rightly divide it, then we will not know. But it has to be based on knowledge. Ye worship, ye know not what. You are ignorant, my dear friend of Samaria, my dear friend of the city of Sychar. You and your fathers are ignorant about how you worship. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews because God gave us his word. This is what we have to have for true worship. Thank you, Lord, for sending it to us. Verse 23, but the hour cometh and now is. Notice, there's a change here. Verse 21 was future tense only. Verse 23 is future and present. The hour cometh and now is because it had already started when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. When Jesus was asked, to show them his kingdom, what did he say? My kingdom cometh not with observation. Did the kingdom of Israel under Moses come with observation? Yes. How about David? Was it observable? Yes. But not the spiritual kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is within you. It's a spiritual kingdom. Look at Luke 16, 16, and brethren... If I'm repeating a verse from last Sunday, I want you to know that I know. When I don't know, we have a problem. When I repeat a verse. And I don't know that I'm repeating the verse. I want you to understand that from John the Baptist to the destruction of Jerusalem, there is a 40-year period of time called the time of Reformation. And I know that some of you know it so well that you could get up and teach it, but I have to teach everyone in here, and so I need to repeat this, and I don't want anyone to forget it. And if you write in your margin, you would want to write Luke 16, 16 about now, and you'd want to write Hebrews 9, 10, and so forth. You'd want to write the observation of the Lord Jesus Christ about his kingdom not being observable. Luke 16, 16, the law and the prophets were until John. That phrase, the law and the prophets, is a descriptive phrase of the Old Testament. 
The law and the prophets were until John. That's John the Baptist. Since that time, and John's ministry was only a year or so, since that time the kingdom of God is preached and every man presseth into it. There is a new kingdom on earth set up by the Lord, John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. They preached words like this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and be baptized. Here's the verse. Started with John, it ended with the destruction of Jerusalem. And for 40 years, the two covenants ran side by side. You could worship either covenant, you could worship both covenants. But as you were converted, you worshiped more and more the covenant of the, the new covenant of the Lord Jesus Christ. For instance, if you read the last 10 chapters of Acts, which you've done recently, you will find the Apostle Paul coming into Jerusalem and meeting with the apostles there, and they asked a favor of him. They said, Brother Paul, these Jews have heard that you're preaching against the law of Moses everywhere. Would you take a vow upon yourself? Would you take a vow on yourself and go into the temple and make a sacrifice there? Sure, no problem. When he met Timothy in Acts chapter 16, Timothy was uncircumcised because his father was a Greek. What did he do to enhance Timothy's preaching to Jews? Had him circumcised. When he met Titus, he tells us in Galatians chapter 2 that he did not circumcise Titus because where Titus was with Paul, there were Jewish legalists present and he wasn't going to give them the credit or the blessing or the benefit of him circumcising a Gentile. So he didn't circumcise Titus. You say, how could he circumcise Timothy and not circumcise Titus? Both covenants are running side by side. It didn't matter what he did with those things. He did it based on circumstances. And when he was in Jerusalem and Peter, James, and John said, would you help us? He said, sure. And so we have Luke 16, 16. Now let's look at Hebrews 10, 9, 10 again. Hebrews chapter 9. I just want these down solid so that we don't have to come back. And if you're ever asked or when you're teaching somebody or you're explaining, do you know how often we use this expression in our prayers and in our conversation? Worship in spirit and in truth. Do we use that a lot? That comes out of our mouths a lot. Do you know exactly what you're saying? That's my purpose right now for a few minutes. Hebrews 9, verses 1 through 9, describe the ordinances of the Old Testament. Look at verse 1. Then verily the first covenant. See, we're not part of the first covenant. We're part of the second. We're part of the new covenant, the better covenant, built on better promises with a better mediator, better benefits, and all the rest that's said in the book of Hebrews. Then verily, back then, Back then in the Old Testament, back then with Moses, verily, it's true, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. Whenever you hear me refer to the Old Testament as worldly, beggarly, rudimentary, elementary, carnal, base, sensual, those are all Bible words. Those are all New Testament words describing the Old Testament. So here it's called a worldly sanctuary because it was only down here and it was of a physical sort. We're in a sanctuary right now, and it's not represented by these four walls. It's represented by the believers that are sitting here, and we are living stones in a temple of God in which he inhabits. And so it goes on. It mentions the candlestick. It mentions the table. It mentions the showbread. I'm in verse 2. 
And then verse 3, it mentions the veil. It mentions the holiest of all. Verse 4, the golden censer, the Ark of the Covenant, Aaron's rod, and all that stuff. Do you know how much stuff we have? We have chairs, a stand for a Bible, carpet, and restrooms. Barely. It says in verse 10 that all this stuff of the Old Testament stood only in meats and drinks and divers' washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. Old Testament is disappearing. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13 is going to say, why is it called the Old Covenant? Because it's old. It's ready to vanish away. And it's called the New Covenant because it's replacing it. It's beautiful, brethren. And he first explained it to a woman of Samaria. The apostles didn't even understand this. This is brand new material coming early on in the ministry of Jesus Christ to the woman of Samaria, written down by John in his fourth chapter. We read it. We are way on the other side of this Reformation. We thank God. The hour cometh and now is. It's happening right now, woman of Samaria, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. They're being dipped in the Jordan River. They're confessing their sins. They're waiting for the one to be announced. It's Jesus of Nazareth. He was announced. They followed him. They left John and followed him. All internal. They didn't go to a new house of worship like the temple. It was inside them as they repented and and embraced the Lord Jesus Christ in their affections and in their attention. The Father seeketh those that will worship him in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. Verse 24, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In spirit. This identifying mark of true worship changed the outward ceremony and rituals of Jewish worship to internal worship of our hearts and our minds and our understanding. This is so strong of a point that when Paul is describing the gifts and ministrations of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding. I will pray with the Spirit. There was inspired singing. There was inspired praying. I will pray with the understanding. It's inside. It's not going through the outward motions of killing an animal, animal, bleeding the blood, sprinkling the blood, offering up incense, baking showbread all the time, and putting it on the table. All that outward stuff went away. So what we have left is what we're doing right now. We open the Word of God. We trust the Spirit of God to bless praying, singing, preaching, and hearing. And when it's appropriate, we have the Lord's Supper. But it's all inside. Do you remember when we read about the Lord's Supper? If we just go through the motions of the Lord's Supper, if we just go through the motions of the Lord's Supper, what happens? You get weak, you get sickly, and you die prematurely. Because you're supposed to be discerning something. You're supposed to be thinking, believing, loving, and embracing something in that ordinance. Not quite like the Old Testament where, hey, bring your ox, Turn it over to the priest, sit back, let them butcher it, let them hand you a part of it while they take most of it home. You could just go through the motions. Not anymore. Because it's internal, it's worship in spirit. Why don't we have musical instruments? If I go to the book of Psalms, 
what Eric taught us today from Psalm 87. He mentions musical praise of God there in the seventh verse of that Psalm 87. David loved musical instruments. David invented musical instruments. David wrote the music. David wrote the lyrics. David organized the praise bands and the choirs, but it was all in the Old Testament. That's going away. The Father seeks worship that is different from that. He wants his music being singing that involves words and instruction and admonition to each other. I mentioned this last Sunday, but if you want a very good example of what spirit worship means with a small s, spirit worship right here, it's we sing. And we sing doctrinally deep songs. We sing songs where we want to convey valuable truth to each other. We don't just hear noise. We don't want a piano in here. All a piano does is make a bunch of noise. We don't want an organ in here. All it does is make a bunch of noise. We don't need a lead guitar or a bass guitar. All they do is make a bunch of noise. They do not affect the spirit. They do not affect the heart. They do not affect the mind. They affect the body. You know, if somebody were to light up the who about now from my teenage years, it would move my body. But when you sing, "'Twas with an everlasting love," it moves a different part of me altogether, and it doesn't move my body. And that difference... Okay, when people find out that we don't have musical instruments, you know, they wander in, and I know I'm talking like an old man now because I am an old man. They look to the left, there's no piano. They look to the right, there's no organ. They look up here, there's no percussion. There's no guitars, there's no amplifiers, there's, no, there's nothing. What in the world? You people are old-fashioned. Thank you. Jeremiah 6.16 says we ought to look for the old paths. Where is in the good way? And that's how we want to worship the Lord. But when they come in here, then they hear that we don't use musical instruments. Sometimes they'll say, well, you're such a nitpicker. That's such a little thing. I am laying truth on you right now that if you're understanding me, you no longer believe that musical instruments is a small thing. Because Jesus is saying, God the Father wants worshipers that will worship him in spirit and in truth. And what they're doing in Jerusalem is not worship in spirit. And what they're doing in Gerizim is not worship in truth. Do you know what they were using in Jerusalem with no let up? Musical instruments. Because it was changed. Does that help you? Oh, it, it excites me. I want, I want to practice John 4, 20 through 24. And when it says God is a spirit, we aren't going to help him by the 88 keys of a piano. What can we bless him with? Oh, yes. T'was with an everlasting love. God chose his own elect and laid them on the bosom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, yes. Now he gets pleased by our worship. And the Father seeks such to worship him. Sorry for that delay. But brethren, you have, do, you, do you know how to apply John 4, 24? God is a spirit. That means he doesn't have a body. That means he's not corporal. That means he's not flesh. He's not bones. There's no blood. He's a spirit. He's invisible. You'll never see God. The Bible says you'll never see God. No one has ever seen God. The only things they've ever seen are little things that he made to represent himself while he was talking to somebody on earth like a burning bush. Or a, holy, or a dove descending upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is not a dove. Those are just representations momentarily for us to see something because God had told John the Baptist 
The one upon which you see the Holy Spirit descending. Well, now how is John going to see the Holy Spirit descending without a dove coming down upon him? There had to be something visible for John. God is a spirit. He's invisible. Therefore, we don't build him a house or a room or a holy of holies with a veil because God isn't in a place like that. God is in a place like this. We have come together as living stones, creating an organism, a body, that the Holy Ghost inhabits. God comes down and dwells among us, with us, in us, in us individually, and then in us as a church as well. The gift of the Holy Ghost is, first of all, to individual people. He goes into them. I will be your comforter. I will be inside you. Each one of you can have the gift of the Holy Ghost, but he also, on another level of his ministration, inhabits churches. As Ephesians chapter 2 tells us, remember the book of Ephesians is where you want to go to see a number of the ministries of the Holy Spirit because all six chapters of that epistle have references to different ministries of the Holy Spirit. Your Bible reading is going to be in Ephesians this week. Read those six chapters and look for the references to the Holy Spirit. And so when it says God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit, that means they worship him internally with their affections and their minds and their understanding, not externally with ceremonies and rituals. It's no longer showbread. It's eating the bread of life. How do you eat the bread of life? By believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. How are you filled with water? By walking in the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Ghost. I, you, okay, I have to leave this verse, but I want you to all understand it. Can you explain John 4, 24? God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit. That is not the Holy Spirit. And I wouldn't base it on the small s. I would base it on what's taking place right then. The Holy Spirit was involved in Old Testament worship. He just hadn't been given permanently to every single person. He was involved. He revealed things. He moved prophets. He moved David. The Spirit came upon Samson and moved them from time to time. This Spirit is a new internal religion so that you don't need a place like Gerizim or Jerusalem. You can do it anywhere. And you know what? We could meet anywhere. If Adam were to clean out his 7,200 square foot shop, we could meet there. Did we ever meet in your shop? Charlie, we sure did. Because it doesn't matter where we meet. We don't need a steeple. We don't need stained glass. We don't need PUs if we sat on the floor and crossed our legs. It would be fine. It might be good for us once in a while. Turn the pews all upside down and meet out in the yard. Just to remind us of this verse, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Okay, 25, the woman saith unto him, she's just heard a lot of truth from a Jewish prophet. She says, I know that Messiah cometh. Messiah, when it's translated from Hebrew into Greek, and then into English, I know that Messiah cometh. Two times in the New Testament only. Two times in the Old Testament only do we have this word Messiah, which is called Christ. That Hebrew word Messiah in Greek is Christ. Both of them mean the anointed one of God. Jesus stood up in the, in the synagogue of Nazareth in, in Luke chapter 4. He quoted from Isaiah chapter 61. He said, the Lord God hath anointed me. If you go to Psalm 2, you'll read about the Lord Jesus Christ. God hath anointed him. I have anointed him with the Holy Ghost above his fellows. 
Psalm 45, Hebrews chapter 1. It's the anointed one, the chosen one, the special one, the deliverer of God. Now, how would this Samaritan woman know that? Because they had the first five books of the Bible. And even in a false Bible version, there's enough truth there to teach someone. There just isn't perfect word-for-word integrity like we expect from a Bible. But there is enough truth in the Samaritan Pentateuch for her to know that. And because they lived with Jews south of them, east of them, west of them, and north of them, they would have known about this great deliverer coming. She said, Sir, or the woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh. Okay, Old Testament prophecies of Jesus Christ in the first five books of the Bible. Number one, Genesis chapter three, God said to the devil, that woman, Eve, is going to have a male child and he will bruise your head. That is the seed of the woman that men have been waiting for for 6,000 years that God had regenerated. If you get over to Genesis 49, Jacob is on his deathbed. His sons are standing around his bed and he starts down through his sons. And it wasn't pleasant because some of those sons were very wicked. He gets to son number four, Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, meaning Judah's going to rule over his brothers. Judah's going to be the tribe of kings. That scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh come. Oh, there's someone named Shiloh. And listen to these words. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Oh, brethren, he's gathered us. Our Shiloh has come and he was gathering one woman. He took the time for one woman of the Samaritans, and she a dissolute woman, a lascivious woman. Thank you, Lord, for saving the worst of us and for saving all of us that are saved this morning. That's number two. Number three, oh, I need to back up to Genesis chapter 22, where God told Abraham that because you've not withheld your only son from me, that in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. All the what? All the nations of the earth will be blessed in the seed of Abraham. And what is the seed of Abraham? The Lord Jesus Christ, Galatians 3.16. How are all the nations of the earth blessed? Because we are justified the same way that the Jews are, the same way that Abraham was, by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we believe on him by faith. Galatians chapter 3 tells us exactly that, that when God said that to Abraham, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Galatians 3 tells us exactly what that was, that we are justified by Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham. Number four, number four is Deuteronomy 18, when the people of Israel said, we don't want God to talk with us anymore. It's just too hard. And God said, okay, that's a decent idea. I'll raise, I'll raise up a prophet like unto Moses, and he'll come and tell you everything that you need. Wow, she knew her Bible. You say, can a person know their Bible and sin? Have you read your Bible? She knew her Bible. She said, Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. God told Israel, I'll raise up a prophet like unto Moses, so that you won't have to hear from me. You can hear from him. He'll tell you everything you need to know. And those men that will not hear him, he will destroy. And he destroyed the Jews in 70 AD, the Lord Jesus Christ did. And Peter quoted that precious message in Acts chapter 3, in the last 10 verses of that chapter, 
Peter quoted that passage from Deuteronomy 18, applied it to the Lord Jesus Christ, because remember it was Peter telling that generation, save yourselves from this untoward generation. If you do not believe on, the, on Jesus of Nazareth, whom God has made both Lord and Christ, he is coming to destroy this nation. I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. She had just heard a bunch of things in verses 20 through 24. And she's, she's, a, she's falling back on the little bit she knew. There is someone coming from Judah, Shiloh. He is going to be the Messiah. He's the Christ of God. Do you know all the names of our Lord? When we say Jesus... That is his personal name given to him by his parents, Joseph and Mary, Joseph being his legal father. The angels told both of them privately, independently, to name him Jesus. Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. Amen. That's what the name means. That's his personal name. God hath given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. The name has been abused by Jesus freaks. The name has been abused by charismatics. But we need to love that name because that's the name which is above every name. Amen. Christ is a title given to him as the anointed one of God, the Messiah of God. Messiah is twice in Daniel 9, twice in John 1 and chapter, John chapter 1 and John chapter 4. The only times Messiah is in the Bible in either form, Messiah or Messiah. That's his title. Lord is his position. He is our sovereign ruler. The Lord said unto my Lord, Psalm 110 verse 1, about Jesus Christ's relationship to David. He's our Savior by descriptive adjective of what he's done for us. Do you understand these words? Don't let them get confused in your mind. Embrace them indi ind individually and put them together in different combinations. In the, in the New Testament is Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, Lord Jesus, Lord Christ. They're all, they're all there. Because it's not like a first, second, third, and fourth name. His name is Jesus. His title is Christ. His position is Lord, and he is our Savior. Amen. And he's a whole lot more than that. He's my friend. And he's just about to make another friend. And he says in verse 26, I that speak unto thee am he. Wow! I that speak unto thee am he. I am the Messiah that was to come. I am the Christ that was to come. I'm the fulfillment of Shiloh in your Pentateuch. I'm the fulfillment of the seed of the woman. I'm the fulfillment of the seed of Abraham. I'm the fulfillment of the prophet like unto Moses. The Lord Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, and it amuses us and blesses us and pleases us to see this, led her to this point, didn't he? Yes, right. He knew that he was going to get to this point, didn't he? Mm -hmm. And he got to this point. Did he get to a point like this with anyone else? Very, very similar to this. The man born blind in John yes. chapter 9. Uh, we're going to get to it in a few years. <laughs> Jesus heard that he had, they had cast him out of the synagogue. And when he had found him, he said unto him, Jesus saying to the man born blind after he was healed, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. Amen. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Yes. Okay, what are you doing right now? 
Do you believe? Amen. Are you worshiping Him? Do you love Him? Are you looking forward to seeing Him? Amen. Do you love His appearing? Are all your springs in Him? Let's tie this whole day together. He has appeared to you. He has spoken to you. He has come to you by His Spirit and His Word and said to you, I am He. Do you believe on Him? Are we going to obey Him? Delight in Him. Sing His praise. Speak of Him to others. This woman is going to. Verse 27, And upon this came His disciples. Upon this, that is the exchange between Jesus and the woman of Samaria. Upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman because it was so uncommon for a Jew to talk with a Samaritan. They marveled, yet no man said, What seekest thou to her? Or why talkest thou with her to him? They didn't question either one of them because they could have seen the sobriety and the gravity of the situation. And they honored the Lord here for an exceptional case. They honored the Lord here by granting that Jesus knew what he was doing and the exchange that they were just had. They may have heard the last couple of sentences. They may have heard the last few verses that we have recorded. They didn't ask or bother or interrupt. The, verse 28, the woman then left her water pot. Now, how far did she walk to get there? We don't know. What do you want to take? What do you want to guess? A hundred yards? A mile? She brought her water pot. It does not make sense to bring a water pot to a well and to go back into town without your water pot. Even if you want to go back into town to tell them about Jesus, you would take your water pot with you unless something big enough had happened to get your mind off the water pots of this world, like Zach called them in our prayer meeting this morning. She no longer cared about water or putting water in a basin or a bathtub or wherever at home. She wanted to get to town to tell them she had found the Messiah. What distracts you, brethren? What are your water pots that you can't let go of? Could she have got to town as fast with her water pot? No, even with an empty. Could she have got to town as fast with a water pot full of water? No, she left her water pot and she went after her city. The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to the men, this was an unusual, never mind. She went her way and saith to the men, Come, see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? I like what she did said to them. She did not say a man that told me he was the Christ. She gave them evidence rather than just his testimony. Because at this point... His testimony wouldn't mean anything. There were lots of imposters. Jesus said, many shall come in my name saying, I am Christ. Don't believe them. And so the woman doesn't, doesn't say that. Is not this the Christ? What does she appeal to? She appeals to a sign and wonder that he performed for her. And that was to tell her about details of her life that he could not have otherwise known without supernatural power. And since he had just laid on her the change of religion of Gerizim, the change of religion in Jerusalem, she had told him things that she knew superseded anything in Jerusalem. He had to be more than a prophet. This was the Christ. And he claimed that he was the Christ. But she didn't appeal to that. And they are not going to reference that testimony of Jesus. They are going to reference the evidence. 
And I want to remind each of us as we're thinking about the evangelistic methods and manners of this fourth chapter of John that we bring evidence to bear. Don't just tell somebody, I believe. Or God did this for me. They need more than that. They need the Word of God. They need to be convinced that the Word of... If they don't care about the Word of God, then you have very little to tell them. They need to be convinced about the Word of God, and then you need to show them from the Word of God the truth about Jesus Christ, the truth about doctrine and true worship. It's got to be more than just a testimony. Testimonies are nice, but we don't want someone believing by virtue of a testimony. We want someone believing by faith God gives them in His Word. The Apostle Paul did not use eloquence. The Apostle Paul did not use wisdom so that their faith would stand in the power of God and not in the wisdom of men. And so I just want you to notice that, that when the woman speaks to her city, what she said, verse 29, come, come, come to church with me. Come to a Bible study with me. Come, let us get away from this crowd and read. I want to show you a passage. Come. She's aggressive. I love this woman. This woman is ahead of the apostles. She knows what her meat is to do, and she knows there's a harvest. Two things that the apostles didn't recognize until Jesus took them by the nape of the neck and pointed it out to them in verses that we'll look at after our break. Do you understand that? She knew both things already. My meat is to do the will of God and to leave this water pot here and to go help my city. There's a harvest in that city. The apostles come sauntering back with a couple bags of groceries. Can you believe it? And Jesus said, I have meat that ye know not of. Are, you, are, you getting, are we getting ahead? I have meat that ye know not of, and that is to do the will of God. And if you would lift up your eyes, there isn't four months to harvest. It's right now because look at that crowd that's coming toward us that you just bought groceries from. And all you had was 3,714 miracles you could have told them about. How many did she have? One widow one. But it was big to her. Don't you love this woman? Can the Lord use any kind of people? Was she a bad woman? Yes. Was she a good woman? Yes. Can you be both? Yes. You are. I hope you all know what I mean. We all got a sin nature inside. And oh, come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Now she knew more. She knew that he had claimed to be the Christ, but she didn't use that because the evidence was a stronger appeal. Then they went out of the city and came unto him. When they came unto him, we're going to read about this after our break. Many of them were already believers by her testimony that she had told them enough. And very likely, they were in expectation and waiting for the Messiah to appear. John the Baptist had been pointing them out. Do you think their newspapers had said nothing about John the Baptist? Do you think in the Drudge Report there was nothing about John the Baptist for these Samaritans? They were surrounded by Jews. They would have heard. They would have known. 
Because in Israel, before John and Jesus appeared in the scene, there was a group of people that were in expectation. Luke 3.15 is the terminology. They were in expectation, and they were waiting for redemption in Jerusalem. Act, uh, Luke 2 and verse 38, Anna was one of them. So there was an expectation, and so here comes a woman. She describes a miracle from a Jew who's a prophet who discerned things about her, and she relates that they come out and they're believers. The Bible's going to tell us they're believers, and they're believers that he would commit himself to because he stayed for two more days among the Samaritans. And many more will believe once they hear Jesus preach. That's how it works. Now, Francis wanted to point out to me last Lord's Day after our sermons, and I want to give her credit where credit is due. She wanted to compare this to the response that the Gadarene got and Jesus got from the city of the Gadarene. Do you remember when Jesus cast the devils out of the Gadarene into a herd of swine? They ran down a steep place and drowned themselves in the sea. Then the city came out and they saw the Gadarene in his right mind and clothed and talking with Jesus. They saw a miracle greater than than what the woman of Samaria saw, and they said, we don't want you here. Get out of our coast. Right. These Samaritans said, will you come into town and stay and preach to us for a couple of days? What a difference! Right. Who makes that difference? God makes that difference. Amen. We have larger family members. Some of you have closer family members. We have friends. We have neighbors. We know people that have heard the truth of the gospel, and it never moved them. But it moved us. Thank you, Lord, for making us like the city of Samaria. And for Jesus to dip down to this woman and to spend two days in this city of Sychar among the Samaritans, the despised people of the Jews, that was evidence. That was showing. That was a token for good that he was coming after you and me. And he came after you and me. Shiloh came and has gathered us to himself. And the, uh, the, other, the fold of the Gentile, the sheep of the Gentiles are being brought in to the one fold of John chapter 10 and verse 16. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Amen. Do you love him? Do you see in him the Messiah of God, the anointed one of God? Amen. The Lord of heaven and earth, the savior of the world, as they're going to call him in verse 42. Do you see him as all those things? Your friend, your savior, your Lord, the anointed one of God? Do you love him? Do you want to share him? Do you want to speak of him? Do you want to talk of him? Do you want to go say, come? Lord, help us. Amen. Amen. Amen.